It is really good to be here. It's, it's funny. I've known, I've known Pastor Finn for like, it's got to be like 20 years now, right? I mean, it's been a really long time. I have a deep affection for Hope Church, just really been blessed and grateful to just see the good thing that God is doing here. So every time Sherry and I and the boys get a chance to come out and be with you guys, honestly, it is a, a real treat for us. So, uh, so really, really glad to be here. So uh, we just got back from Disney. We went to Disney World in August. That seemed like a good idea at the time. So I've known for a little while that, uh, that I'd be preaching from Exodus and just asking God to kind of like prepare my heart and think about what this journey through the desert in the heat was like. And then we booked a trip to Florida in August. And, uh, you know, just thinking about this trip, I mean, spending... This is a big deal for me. Like, I looked at my little pedometer, and I walked, like, 20,000 steps a day. That's a lot. Well, some of you guys are like marathon runners, and you're like, oh, come on. But for me, that's, I'm, I'm averaging, like, 3,500 tops. So 20,000 steps was, was a big deal. And, and just, I remember even saying to Sherry at one point, as we were kind of marching out of Magic Kingdom with this mass of people waiting for the monorail, and I'm just like, we're just walking with our children in tow, they're crying, and we're just like, this had to be what it was like. It definitely was not what it was like, because they were in the desert and I was at Disney World. But nonetheless, it was, uh, it, it was a good trip. Listen, this series that you've been going through this summer in Exodus, this story of the Israelites' journey in Exodus is so, so powerful and good. This is not ancient folklore that we need to kind of stretch and manipulate to find a way to make it matter, to make it relate to our lives. In fact, the story of God's people in Exodus and their journey is the story of our lives. It's the story of your life, and it's the story of my life. And if we would be willing to see this journey for what it is. And I know this series is coming to an end, and, and I'm actually really glad to be able to, to talk a little bit about Exodus chapter 32 today. But, you know, as we see this journey of God's people, if we would be willing to see it for what it is, even the New Testament speaks over and over again how the, the, the journey of God's people in Exodus is for us. It's for you and for me as we sit here today and as we read this, for us to see and experience the richness of God bringing us on a journey as well. And if we would be willing to experience that together, we will experience the gospel more profoundly. And that's sort of my, my prayer. You know, even as I was just sitting there and just worshiping and, and just pleading with God, for myself and for all of us, that as we delve into this passage, that we would experience the power of the gospel more richly. So, we good? Let's, uh, it, it, there's a lot happens in Exodus chapter 32, but it's really good. We good? Let's journey through this together, yes? All right, let's pray one more time and then we'll, we'll dive in. God, we are so grateful for your word. Thank you that you are good, that this book is full of truth.
that when we look at the journey of your people from Egypt to the promised land, we see a story of you. We see a story of your goodness, of your nearness, of your love and your desire and your commitment to your people. And as we sit here in this place, God, would we too be filled with a sense of your goodness and your kindness and your commitment to every person in this room. God, I pray that our hearts would be soft to that this morning. God, I pray that our hearts would be fertile places where your word can be planted deeply and that we would hear from you above all else, that you would meet us in the darkest corners of our hearts that may feel like they have no space for you. God, would you be the one that shines light into those places, even this morning, even in this very moment. So we love you. We thank you. We thank you that your presence is here. Your spirit is here. I pray that you would move in this place and move in our hearts in Jesus' name. So, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 32, but up until now, and I know you guys have covered a, a lot, you know, going through this summer series in Exodus, but up until now, there's sort of been this theme in the book of Exodus, which is this story about God's grace and his kindness and his generosity towards his people. It's a, it's a story about God lovingly and compassionately moving toward his people. That this idea that God is not distant from them, that, that God is full of love and he's full of compassion and that he is, he is near to them. And in so much as God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and forever, that God too, here in this place, is near to us. That he is a God who, who comes towards you. And that's sort of this theme that you see throughout Exodus. And this kind of flies in the face of, you know, God's reputation in a lot of ways, right? I mean, if you think about the way, hey, in, in difficult times or you're talking to people like at your workplace or at your school, the idea that God is near kind of flies in the face of that because what we feel most acutely sometimes and what we hear most commonly in dialogue is this idea of where is God, right? That he is not near. That if there is a God, does he even care about what's going on here? Does he, how does God, if you're saying that he's so great, going to care about little me? And the idea that God is near, that the God of the universe draws near to us, the reason why it's hard to accept is because there's an extent to which it's a bit of a foreign concept. And at this point, the people of God, they had been enslaved for over 400 years. I know you guys went through a, through a bit of that together. And in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, there's this, this point where God says, I have heard their cry. I don't know if the PowerPoint's working, but there's a slide for the verse. Exodus 3, 7, where it says, God says, I have heard their cries. These weren't even cries to God per se. He's just saying that I have heard their lament. That there, there are people that are in slavery and they are suffering. And he says, I have heard their lament and I feel concerned about them. That is really powerful in and of itself. Think about what's happening here. God is hearing and hearing their cries, feeling something for them, and moving toward them and acting on their behalf. 
So then God demonstrates his expansive power to liberate them from that bondage, right? Absolutely nothing that the Israelites did on their own. And I know you guys went through like these 10 plagues that he brought upon Egypt, right? Turning the Nile to blood and frogs and lice and flies and the livestock being killed and boils and hail and locusts and all this, this crazy stuff. And, and I know Israel taught you a little bit about how, uh, you know, how God was addressing and tearing down some of the idols that the Egyptian people were, were worshiping through these plagues. And that God then leads, convinces Pharaoh to set these people free, and then God leads his people almost by hand out of slavery, out of that bondage to this land that he promised by a, by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He le literally walks them out of Egypt because he, he's continuing to draw near to them. He's continuing to go towards them. And while they're on their journey, when they're hungry, he feeds them with bread that falls out from the sky. And when they grumble that that's not enough and it doesn't taste good and they want more, he provides quail that just falls out of the sky. And he's giving them bread and he's giving them meat and he's meeting their needs as they're on this journey. Why? Because he's moving toward them. He is a God that is good and kind and generous and he's moving toward them while they're on this journey. And there's no illusions about the fact that this trip was difficult. Just like your journey and my journey is filled with difficulty. It's filled with hardship, isn't it? But yet still, God is moving toward them. They find themselves at one point where they are, are between a rock and a hard place. They've got the Red Sea in front of them, and they've got the Egyptian army behind them who changed their mind and said, hey, we're going to go get these people back and bring them back into slavery. And, and they cry out and they say, did we come out here with our children in tow, just like we were holding our crying children's hands in Disney World? Did we come out here so that we could die in this place? And what does God do in that moment of difficulty? He goes toward them yet again, and he parts the Red Sea, and they walk across it in dry land. And then they find themselves in the desert, and they're thinking, we have nothing to drink, and here I am again with my young babies in tow, crying because they're thirsty. And God provides fresh water in the desert because he continues to move toward them. He took them on a long journey. The shortest distance from A to B, from Egypt to the Promised Land, was like this. And if you look at a map and you look at the way that God took them, he took them on a journey that went like this. What was he doing? What was he doing? He was continuing to move toward them. He was continuing to guide them on a journey that was for their good. And he never left, let their needs go unmet. Uh, unmet. And he never let them uh, come to feel as if they were alone, though they were prone to feeling that way. I have felt the pain of what it's like to have to do something the long way. Maybe you have too. There's a, in Psalm chapter 13, the psalmist just cries out and he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? I, I know what that's like. I've felt that before where I felt like God has just taken me the long way around and how difficult it is for us to be patient in that moment. 
So here's God's people. They've been journeying. They've seen God's provision, and they find themselves in the wilderness, and they find themselves at Mount Sinai, and they can see God's presence at Mount Sinai. They can see clouds and lightning and the presence of God hovering over this mountain. And in this place, God invites them into a covenant with him. He invites them to continue a promise that he had already made. And, and the entire of, entirety of the scriptures, all of the Bible, is a book, a, a, a story of God's promises. It's a story of a God who keeps his promises to you, who keeps his promises to me. And, and what he offers to the Israelites in that moment at Mount Sinai where, he, Sinai, where he invites them into a covenant, is a continuation of a promise that he had made long before that with a guy named Abraham, where you know, God promises something that had never been done before. So really quick, the short version. You know, the way that two people would enter into the most sacred of promises at that time was called a blood covenant. What they would do is, it's kind of gross now, don't try this at home, but they would cut some animals in half and they'd lay them along the sides. And then two people who were entering into a promise together would hold hands and they would walk through like these remnants of these, these cut up animals and, and they'd make this promise to one another. What they were saying was, if I don't keep my promise then what happened to these animals, may that happen to me as well. And what God did with Abraham before we even got to this point is God cut up these animals. He put them side by side. Abraham's standing there watching, being like, what's happening? And then God walks through it himself. And he says, I am making a promise to you that despite what you do, no matter what you do, I'm committed to you. I will move toward you. I love my people, my creation, and I will move toward you. And that's the covenant that he's continuing here at Mount Sinai when he offers them to enter that into. And the Israelites are like, yes, that sounds good. Sign me up. And he provides them with sort of the basic terms of this covenant, right? The Ten Commandments, right? Maybe you're familiar with those. And 52 more commandments beyond that. They all are God just drawing near to them. These commands speak to how they should worship, how they should relate to one another for social justice. All shaping Israel into a nation of justice and generosity that is like no other. A, a, a nation that reflects God himself. And God draws near to them again. And he tells Moses to build this sacred tent called the tabernacle so that his presence can be right in the midst of his people because he desires to draw near over and over again. He con continues to draw near. That is an incredible journey you have covered this summer. This story of God drawing near to his people, God drawing near to you, God drawing near to me. And he was near then, and he's even nearer now. God is in this place. So while Moses is up on this mountain getting sort of the blueprints for this, uh, this tabernacle that, that God is asking them to build, something happens down below with the people while they're waiting for him. And that's where we're going to pick up today in, uh, in Exodus chapter 32. We're going to call it self-preservation to start. Let's take a look at this. Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. It's 1 to 6. It says this, when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us from the land of Egypt. So Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. 
All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into, a shape, into the shape of a calf. And when the people saw it, they exclaimed, O oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf, and he announced, Tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. And the people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. Okay, so let's try to get, get a picture of what's actually happening here. Let's, let's make sure we're understanding this. So they just, the Israelite people had just experienced God's goodness and his kindness and his moving toward them for, over all of this time while they were coming from Egypt to the place where they are at this point. Okay, and here they are, and they're wondering what is happening. Okay, so look at what it says here. The people saw how long it was taking Moses to come down. So there's like a stressor here. There's, a, there's something happening that is causing them to stress out a little bit. They're, they saw Moses go up there. He said, I'm going to go hear from God, and I'll be back. And some time is going by, and he's not coming back. And they're wondering what is happening. Now, listen, it is easy for you and me to be like, come on, people. You've seen God do all this great stuff, and now you're not going to believe? Listen, how easy is it for us to sit here and cast that judgment upon them? But I tend to look at this, and I can't help but feel like this concern, this stress that they're feeling seems incredibly reasonable to me. And it's easy for me to sit here and knock them now in hindsight, but I feel like I might be doing the exact same thing. Where, look at it as what they're feeling. They're, they're feeling worried. They've got their children in tow. They're waiting at the bottom of a mountain, and they're feeling worried about what the future holds. That is real. That is a real and valid concern. They're, they're feeling unsafe. They're wondering, what is going to happen next? Where is Moses? We, had, we were trusting him, and he's been gone a really long time. So what does that mean for us? They're feeling scared. And what I would say is this, guys. You know, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you've been following him for a long time, or this is all kind of new to you, the fact that you are here today and that you're, you're breathing in and out and you got up out of bed this morning and that, that you're, you're here with us is a result of God moving toward you. It is a result of God's goodness and his mercy and his kindness in your life. And yet still, here we are living and breathing and moving. And how easy it is for me still to feel, to be overwhelmed sometimes with that sense of worry, that sense of feeling unsafe. I don't know about you guys. There are mornings where I wake up and the, I open my eyes in bed, and the first thing that floods into my mind are worries about some stressor in my life. Has that ever happened to you? And it's just like, oh, what do I do? And my heart starts beating faster, and I'm like, do I, do I get up out of bed and start dealing with this? I also don't want to get up in bed, out of bed and start dealing with this. And then one thought just leads to another. And here we are experiencing God's goodness that we're here in this place. And we still feel that, don't we? Because that is real. It is real and valid concern. Look at what they say. They say, we don't know what happened to Moses who brought us from Egypt. There's, there's confusion. We don't know what happened, Right? And here's what's happening. Their reality is starting to get clouded. They saw 
over this journey so far that Moses is not the one who parted the sea and gave them bread from the sky. They know that it was God himself, but their reality is starting to get clouded in the middle of this stressor. Why? That is what a stressor will do. That is what a stressful situation will do to them. It is what it will do to you. I know it is what, it, what happens to me. And we're going to see a little bit more of that, but their, their reality is starting to get clouded when they say, we don't know what happened to Moses who brought us from Egypt. So they come up with a solution. They ask Aaron to make us some gods who can lead us. There's something happening here. There is a need that the people are feeling that they are desiring to have met. And that's the reason why they're asking Aaron to do this for them, right? They, they're feeling some type of a need. They're scared. They're worried. They're uncertain about the future. They're, they're feeling some kind of a need, and they're saying, God, they're saying, Aaron, make us some gods. There's this realization that they have a need for something outside of themselves to help them feel safe. Because for sure, before they asked Aaron to do this for them, and while they're waiting for Moses, they're trying to figure out a way to feel safe, right? They're like, okay, it's going to be okay. Maybe they're trying to talk themselves into it. This is going to work out. Eventually, they realize they need something outside of themselves to put their faith in in order for them to feel safe. That concept is built into the heart of every person. Ecclesiastes says God has placed eternity into the heart of every person. What that means is that you and me, deep within our spirit, every friend, every colleague, every family member that you have, deep within our spirit and our heart has a sense that there is something outside of ourselves that we are in need of. And that's the sense that they have here. So they, they, they start to try to find their own solution to this. They ask Aaron to, to make a God for them. You know, I, I know that this idea that that, that that need had to be met is true as much today as it is, as it was then, because the reality is you don't have to look very far to realize that no matter how hard a person tries to kind of meet their own needs, that it is never, ever enough. I, I know that's my reality, where when I pursue career, and these are good things, you pursue career, you pursue education, these are in fact good things and worthy of your pursuit. But when I pursue them as an end unto itself, it is never enough. Because I'll get one more raise because I just needed that much more money. Just, I just needed a little bit more of my paycheck so that I could not stress so much. But then when I get it, I find my, that I just need that much more still. And then I need just that much more still. And it's one degree after another, and it's one thing after another. Hey, the wealthiest, most satisfied people in the world, the people who seem to have it all, are the ones also who, just like you and me, struggle with, with depression and anxiety and sadly go to the point of even taking their lives so often. How is that possible? But for the fact that God has placed in the heart of every person a need for something outside of ourselves, which is him. Look how this stressor leads them down this path of distorting the truth in verse 4. It says, O Israel, Aaron, Aaron builds these gods for them, and he says, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. Think about this for a second. That is like kind of a slap in God's face, isn't it? Because these people just saw God part the Red Sea. He saw them send bread from heaven. He saw them send fresh, he saw, they saw God give fresh water in the middle of the desert. And if nothing else, 
the presence of God was right in front of them. All they had to do was look up that mountain and see this cloud and this lightning as it's described, as the presence of God on the top of this mountain. They didn't need to look any farther than that. And I don't know about you or me, I, I, find that this, I find that I feel the same thing sometimes. I'll just look out into, I love going to, the, to, to um, like on a cruise. Like Sherry won't go on a cruise anymore. She doesn't like going on cruises. Maybe you guys can talk her into it. But one thing I love about it is like sitting on that deck looking out at the ocean. And thinking to myself, man, you feel so small in that moment. If you go somewhere that's outside of New York and we can actually see the stars, and, and, and you see just the dark night sky and those stars, I don't know about you, I feel so small in that moment. And I, I feel an awareness of the presence of God. And here are these folks seeing the presence of God on the top of that mountain, having seen his work, his drawing near to them over and over again throughout this journey. And Aaron says, oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt, the one that he just crafted for them. But once again, it's easy for me to read that, and my instinct is like, come on, people. After what you saw, you're going to go ahead and try to say that it was someone other than God himself who did this for you? But <laughs> this is me, because I do the exact same thing. How easy is it? for us to say, behold the girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse, children that delivered me, that brought me out of loneliness. Like, be behold the, the hard work and determination that have given me and brought me out and given me success at work or at school. Right? Be behold the, the, the tendency to, to get angry, to kind of cut someone off uh, on the roadway that, that has delivered me from an injustice done against me. Right? Behold the, the images on the internet that I look at that have delivered me from emptiness. Behold the substance, the drug, the alcohol that has delivered me from sadness. We can't be knocking these guys. This is me. This is my story. This happens to me all the time. And if we are willing to be vulnerable enough with ourselves and before God to acknowledge that, because every one of those sentences, every one of, of the things that we think deliver us from loneliness, from hardship, from sadness, from depression, the things that we think deliver us, all of those sentences end with this, for a season, for a moment. Right? Behold the images on the internet that have delivered me from emptiness for a moment. Below, behold the, the girlfriend, boyfriend, wife, children that have delivered me from loneliness for a season. And so they begin to worship this God that they've created. It says in verse 6, they celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revel revel revelry. <laughs> Think about this. To a, to a statue of their own design with no ability to respond to them, no ability to move toward them, they begin to worship. They'd ex they had already experienced a God who was constantly moving toward them. The reason why I, saw, I said, hey, you know what, let's take seven or eight minutes and talk about that journey is because I wanted for, for us to really appreciate they had been experiencing a God who was constantly responding to them. He heard their cries. He moved toward them. When they were in need, he met those needs. And here they are now worshiping and reveling, reveling in the presence of 
a God who has no ability to respond to them. Because in a moment of stress, in a moment of worry, anxiety, fear, they forgot. And that self-preservation runs so deep. It really does. Our, our um, you know, it says that, it says that uh, even in this, in this moment, Aaron goes and he says, Moses confronts him with what's happened. And in, in uh, chapter 32, verse 22, Aaron starts to defend himself. He says, don't get so upset, my Lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know how evil these people are. They said to me, make us gods and will lead us. And we don't, know what ha uh, we don't know what happened to this fellow Moses. And he says, you know, whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. They brought it to me. And um, he says, you know, I just, I put this gold into the fire and out came this calf, is what he said. He's making excuses right away, right? And it's like, uh, Aaron? That is not what happened. Like, we just read it in chapter 32, verse 4, right? It says, then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. How distorted his reality became. Because this need for self-preservation, guys, it runs deep. It runs deep. And we don't need to knock these guys because I do the same thing. I make excuses because my desire to preserve myself knows no end. It is natural, it is normal, but God is inviting us into something else. And when we trade a God who responds to us for a God, an idol that doesn't, there are natural consequences to that. Verse, chapter 32, verse 7 through 9 says this. It says, The Lord told Moses, Quick, go down the mountain. Your people whom you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves, and how quickly they've turned away from the way I commanded them to live. And he says, I've melt they've melted down gold and made a calf, and they bow down to it and sacrifice to it. And they're saying, these are your gods who led you out of Egypt. Then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them, and I will destroy them, and I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. Look at what's happening here. He's saying, how quickly your people who you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. God is pointing out that it is their, their own choice in that moment. Listen, the stressor is real. The feelings that they have of fear and anxiety and uncertainty are real. I have them. You have them. But they were faced with a choice with what to do with those feelings. How do I allow God to work through those feelings, to process them, not to ignore them, but to work through them and direct them back to him and offer those feelings of concern and hurt and hardship and fear back to him. And they had the choice to do that or to self-preserve, and they corrupted themselves by choosing to preserve themselves above all else. And when the stressor comes our way, a job, a broken relationship, financial hardship, when we are faced with that exact same choice, what am I going to do with this hardship? What am I going to do with this fear? I am not going to ignore it. God is not asking us to ignore it. He heard their cries. He felt something for them. He felt something with them. And when you hurt and when I hurt, he feels something for you and he feels something with you. He is a God who weeps with us, and he rejoices with us. That's what that means. God is near. He continues to draw near to you. And when we are faced with that difficult situation, we are also left with that choice. Will I allow God to draw near to me and give even this hardship to him, or will I choose to self 
self-preserve. And when we choose to self-preserve, as they did here, there are natural consequences to that. Why? Because every act of rebellion has consequences. Every act has a consequence of some kind that cannot be ignored. If I give Pastor Finn here $20, and, uh, and he goes and, you know, he spends it, and I, I just let him borrow it, and I come to him later, and I'm like, hey, man, can I get my $20 back? And he's like, I don't have your $20. I'm never going to have your $20. I spent it on, I don't know, popsicles. All right, well, um, if I say, you know, you know what, Finn? Don't worry about it. Uh, I'm going to forgive your debt, right? Now, he, he'll, he'll be feeling great. I'm like, yes, that's it. The debt's forgiven, right? Now, is the consequence of me having given him that $20 gone? It is not, because now who's out $20? Me. Rather than making him pay it back to me, I've now had to absorb the debt. It didn't mean that there were no consequences from the debt. There were still consequences from that debt. Instead of him bearing those consequences, I have borne those consequences. Every single action has a response, has a consequence. The question is, what happens with that consequence? And God describes here that he has seen a people who are stubborn and are rebellious. He says, I've seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. And he says, leave me alone so that the very natural consequence of their actions can run its course, right? Leave me alone so my anger can blaze against them and I will destroy them. We often think of God's wrath as like lightning and thunder and brimstone. And we think that like a bolt of lightning is God's wrath. But you know, Romans 1 describes God's wrath as just leaving us to our own devices, right? It says, you think this is going to satisfy you? Have at it, because that will lead you to a place of loneliness, destruction, eventually death. It will take you there all on its own. That's the wrath of God. And what he's talking about here is their choice to corrupt themselves has that natural result. And he's saying, we're going to have to, they did this. Let's let it run its course. And he says, this is the only thing that can happen. It's the natural and normal consequence of their choice when they were, they were left with this choice to self-preserve or to come back to God and they chose themselves. There was this natural result and that was going to happen unless, unless, unless someone intervenes for them. So enter Moses coming in to intervene in chapter 32, verse 11. He says, Moses tried to pacify the Lord his God. Oh, Lord, he said, why are you so angry with your people whom you brought out of Egypt with such great power and such a strong hand? And why let the Egyptians now say that this God who rescued them from, from Egypt had, did it with evil intention of just like slaughtering them in the desert, right? And then he, he asks God, turn away from your fierce anger. Change your mind about this terrible disaster that you've threatened. Remember the promise that you made to Abraham and his, and his children, right? You bound yourself with an oath to them, and he's reminding them. This, this is pretty incredible. Moses is like pleading with God for these people. But he's not really being rational about it. Like, he's not really doing this in a rational way, right? He asks God, like, what are you so angry about? And it's like, duh, like, what, what am I angry about? Like, did, didn't I just describe to you, like, what's happening, right? And, and he, he kind of throws God's reputation in his face, like, hey, you don't want the Egyptians to think, like, you brought these guys out here just to kill them. Like, those 10 plagues in Egypt didn't just, like, showcase who he is and how powerful he is, right? 
And then Moses, go, Moses quotes God's own promise to Abraham to him, right? That was gutsy, right? But he's pleading with God on their behalf. The problem is that if God overlooks the sin, overlooks that rebellion altogether and says, you know what, Moses? All right, that's it, and it's over, and it's, that's it, it's done. I'll just forgive. Then he wouldn't be just. Who wants to know what the three most popular words are in my house with my two kids? Want to take a guess? It's not fair. Nothing is fair, okay? It could be from, like, who got, like, a, a larger chicken nugget to, you know, who got to, I don't know, play a video game for, like, 45 seconds longer to who, you know, get, has to take a shower first or whatever it is, right? Nothing in that house is fair because inside they have a deep sense of what is just. They have a deep sense of the fact that if something is imbalanced, it needs to be made right. That is what is happening here. God cannot just overlook that sin. God cannot, the, the consequence does not disappear. When I forgive Finn's $20 debt, the debt remains. It's just that instead of him paying it, who's paying it? Me. If God were to just ignore the rebellion and let it go, he would not be just, which means you never know what you're going to get, right? How would you know whether he's going to forgive you or not? What if he wakes up one day and decides to forgive you, but then he wakes up the next day and decides not to forgive me? That's not just. My kids could use their favorite phrase for that. It's not fair. But God is just. He's a God of justice. And because of that, he can't just overlook that sin. So then in verse 31 and 32, Moses realizes that someone has to pay this debt. And he goes back up to the mountain and he offers himself. Verse 30, it says, Moses said to the people, you have committed a terrible sin, but I will go back up to the Lord on the mountain and perhaps I will be able to obtain forgiveness for your sin. So Moses returns to the Lord and says, oh, what a terrible sin these people have committed. They have made gods of gold for themselves. But now, if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, erase my name in, in the record that you have written. Here's the thing. Moses had the right idea. He had the right idea, but it wasn't enough. He had this sense that, like, I can't just outright, like, wave God's own reputation in his face and dare him to just outright forgive. He's starting to understand that this, con that this action has a consequence. And he goes up there and he says, okay, God, forgive them. And you know what? Just take me then. And he's offering himself for these people. And, and, you know, God relents. If, you, if we, We're going to take a look at this in just a moment. God relents because Moses has painted a picture in that moment of satisfaction of God's wrath, of satisfaction of that consequence that is to come in a better version of Moses, who is Jesus. Take a look at verse 32, verse 33. It says, but then we'll, we'll close with this. But the Lord replied to Moses, no, I will erase the name of everyone who has sinned against me. Now go, lead the people to a place I told you about. Look, my angel will lead, the way, uh, will lead the way before you. And when I come to call the people to account, I will certainly hold them responsible for their sins. Now, does this seem weird at all to you? Like Moses asked for sins, uh, asked for forgiveness for the people. God says, no, I will erase the name of everyone who has sinned against me. And yet... He says, now go and lead the people to the place that I told you about. Isn't that a little strange? He's saying, forgive them. And God's saying, 
I, I can't just forgive them, but I will continue to move toward you. I will continue to move toward them as I say, let's continue to lead them to this place that I have promised you. Because what he's referencing is something that is coming that is going to allow for God to move nearer to us than in any way that was ever imaginable because that debt did need to be paid and it would be paid once and for all by Jesus Christ. And, and that is the story that's being told here. When, when he invites them, that, when he, he says, yes, I, I can't just outright forgive, but continue on with this journey, God already had the saving work of Jesus in mind. And that is the saving work. We are on the other side of this. We get to see the full picture that God would send his only son, Jesus Christ. And what it means that Jesus came, died, and rose again is that that debt, that, that debt between, between Finn and I, that $20 that I, now I have to absorb, but I still can't because I need that $20, that Jesus, the only one who could possibly pay that debt successfully, paid it on your behalf, and he paid it on my behalf. And, and what it means for us now is that we are free that we can truly experience the acceptance and the full richness of what it means to be loved by God. This is our story, that God has been drawing near to you since before you were in your mother's womb. And that when we are faced with the choice of do I preserve myself or do I lean in towards this God who is leaning to in towards me, we inevitably choose to preserve myself but that God will not leave you there. He is so committed to you. He is so committed to me that he says, I will continue to come toward you though you are walking away from me. That's what he did for the Israelites here. He says, I can't forgive them outright. This debt needs to be paid, but I will continue to go toward them. And the ways that we walk away from God, he says, I will continue to come toward you. And he desires for us to look to him and come toward him and accept the goodness of this sacrifice that was paid on your behalf and on mine by Jesus Christ, that he died and that he rose again. And what it means now is that we can look to God and know that we are fully and wholly and completely accepted by him, more loved, more accepted, more profoundly than you ever thought possible. And all of these things that we pursue, these good pursuits, these idols that we create in our jobs, in our workplaces, in our schooling, in our families, in our relationships, these are good things worthy of pursuing. But when we make them the ultimate thing, they never fulfill. But what he is offering here is saying, this is who you were created to be. That when God formed you in your mother's womb, he created you to be a son of God, a daughter of God, his own. And when we walk into that, when we lean into this God who is leaning into us and we bask in the fullness of that, we experience what it means to be truly alive. And that is good, church. That is the good thing that God desires for us. That is the good thing that God desires for you. That we would lean into the fullness of the person that God created you to be. One who is forgiven, who is loved, who is accepted, who is alive because Jesus didn't just die, he rose. And what that means is that you rose with him and that we get to experience the fullness of God's love and acceptance. The story of Exodus is the story of us. You guys are going to wrap it up next week and I'm excited about that. After all of this, 
God says something. He describes himself for the first time, really, a couple of chapters after this in Exodus 34. I'm just going to read it to you. We're going to close. This is what God says for himself. This is one of the first times that he really just describes himself. And he says this. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and children of their children to the third and fourth generations. He can't leave it unpunished, but he will pay that debt himself fully through Jesus Christ. This is our God, good, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And as I invite the worship team back up, this is the, this is the God that we come together to sing to and to worship. You know, my, my prayer as I, as I have been, you know, re-studying this journey in recent years in this book of Exodus, man, I see my own, I see my own tendencies and my own life in them so much. But it requires that we are willing to be vulnerable enough with ourselves, vulnerable enough with God to say, yeah, that, that is me. Like, when I, don't, when I don't see or feel you for a moment, I wonder if you're there at all. And I try to figure out a way on my own. And every step that I take and I do that, I'm taking a step further from you, further from the fullness of this good thing that God has for you. But praise be to God. This is a story of God's nearness. This is a story of a God that moves toward you, that moves toward you and moves toward you and moves toward you. And when you rebel, he moves toward you still. And that that connection between mankind and God has been fully and wholly restored in Jesus Christ. That's the good news that we're here to celebrate. And I'm really grateful to have been able to, to celebrate that with you this morning. Let's pray and then we'll worship a little more. God, thank you so much for these moments. Thank you so much for your goodness, for the gospel, the full message of the good news of Jesus Christ, that you have come and died and rose again so that the consequences of our choice to try to preserve ourselves could be paid for in full, and that you, this God who has been drawing near to us from the start, draws near to us still, and now this sort of barrier between us is broken down, and we can bask in your arms fullness of what it means to be loved by you, to be accepted by you, and to be in the fullness of who you created us to be. God, would you cause our hearts to experience your gospel, the good news, more richly. Even today, even this afternoon, as we celebrate baptisms, as we go on throughout this week, would we feel your presence when we wonder, hey, where are you? Where have you been? That we would remember that you are drawing near, that you are drawing near, that you are coming toward us. So we love you. We thank you. We worship you in these moments. We pray this in Jesus' name.